everyone let's call a timeout this podcast is proudly sponsored by the medical indemnity protection society the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students it's free to become a student member for more information regarding mips student membership please visit qr.mips.com.au hi everybody welcome to the timeout my name is ganesh and i'm joined today by dr sally langley a plastic and reconstructive surgeon who is the current president of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and who's been involved with surgical education and training throughout her career. Um, Who knows if we'll be able to hear it today, but she's also an accomplished violin player. Welcome to the show, Sally, and thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Garnished. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's start with your specialty. Can you tell us a bit more about it? What do you do exactly? Okay, well, plastic and reconstructive surgery is a a broad spectrum specialty. Uh, It's very interesting, it's very creative. Um, We we have such a broad range of things that we do. There's no uniformity to plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of small procedures, a lot of very complex major reconstructive operations. And we operate on all age groups, males and females. And we very often work with other specialties like uh, general surgery, orthopedics, maxillofacial, neurosurgery, um, and we and pediatrics and intensive care and trauma. So we have such a, a broad, big specialty. And so we're often trying to work out how to repair defects, how to um, you know, do the geometry, um, you, you, cofactors that go on, morbidities, uh, patient-related concerns. Yeah. We try and work out what's going to create a, a good result for a patient and yeah. can take time to work out a good plan for a patient with a complex problem. Yeah. And do you have any um, area of focus that you're interested in? Well, I've... I've um, practice the whole spectrum of plastic surgery. These days people do tend to subspecialize, but I've done the whole lot, but I don't do such a broad spectrum now. Now, these days my work seems to be confined to skin cancer, cutaneous malignancy surgery, because that just dominates our workload. Mm -hmm. A very big uh, need for cutaneous malignancy uh, assessment and surgery due to such a high rate of melanoma and uh, uh, other uh, keratinocyte malignancies. I also do hand surgery, so a lot of hand trauma, jubitrons contracture, nerve compressions, yeah. reconstructive hand operations, and I do quite a lot of breast surgery. So um, I've done a lot of breast reconstruction, but I don't do so much these days, but I, I do a lot of breast reductions, and that's one of the most satisfying operations that uh, yeah. I've been I can do. The patients are generally extremely happy. There are fairly general things like um, other types of skin lesions, scars, complex soft tissue defects, pressure sores, ulcers. Um, Quite often we're assessing patients and just advising and uh, working out uh, 
wound care regime that will help them. Yeah. But in the past, I've done the whole range, like major microsurgical reconstructions, craniofacial surgery with neurosurgeons, um, cleft lip and palate surgery, uh, pelvic reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction. So I've done them all, yeah. but I, I'm a bit older now and I'm um, doing a bit less. And I've, we now have uh, a lot more plastic surgeons in our department so we can share the subspecialty interest around within the department. Yeah, truly experience in all in all fields from the sounds of it. Yeah. And um, we were wondering, you know, being the president of RACS, does that still give you time to operate? And these are some of the things we'll touch on a bit later today. But for now, there are some warm up questions that we might have a bit of fun with. Um, to start off, Sally, are you more of a dog person or a cat person? Ooh. Or any other pets? Right. I do. I love dogs and cats. I grew up with a lovely dog in our family. Uh, a dog. And we've had a few lovely cats. The latest cat was Dougal. Yeah. Um, very hard to have another cat after Dougal. Um, no, I've, I've had both. But as an adult, it's usually been the cats. Yeah. Uh, these days we have no pet at yeah. the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm next. About that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, next question. Are you more of a music person or a movie person? Oh, I love movies, but I haven't been to a movie theatre for a very long time. Oh, yes. Um, and, but, but then again, my place for watching movies could have been aeroplanes, but then we don't do that anymore. No. So where do you watch your movies? Oh, well, um, Netflix, more like big, long series of things on Netflix, perhaps, or TV on demand. Um, but music, I like music, but I, I tend to just get uh, a bit carried away with, you know, working at my desk these days rather than turning any music on. But I do love listening to um, classical music, early music. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I was supposed to be going to Melbourne for Council Week at the end of October. And when I was in Melbourne in May for the ASC, I um, saw that there was Brandenburg Orchestra concert on. So I tried to buy a ticket, but I couldn't get one. They were sold out. So I bought one for October for the beginning of Council Week. Yeah. We can't go. Well, fingers crossed. Um, we might. Oh, no, we, we can't go. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so, so that's the sort of thing I like. I like um, um, early music concerts, choral music. Mm. Okay. And for another one, are you more of a book person or a podcast person? Is there anything you'd recommend? Yeah, I, I like podcasts and audiobooks. And um, actually, what's the name of that book? Um, Anyway, um, the audio book I'm listening to at the moment is Shaggy Bane. Yes. Yeah. I'm I love that book. about a third of the way through, just uh, um, it's read by someone with a good Scottish accent. So that always helps to get in the mood of a book when you yeah. are narrated by someone who's like got a similar accent. Um, so I, I listen to a lot of audio books uh, when I go walking or running or driving. And some podcasts too. Uh, yeah. yeah, but I read paper books sometimes because people, we've got a lot of books and people give me books. So quite often I'm reading 
books that are made of paper as well. Yeah, the good old books. We love them. Um, now, what's your favourite pastime when you're not being a surgeon? Well, my favourite pastime is probably just getting outdoors and walking, running, or going to the gym, although our gym hasn't really been functioning properly mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, and, but, but in my family, me and my family, my husband, we, we mostly attend to the family. So we have old, both got old mothers. So we, we visit our old mothers and talk to our mothers. And we have lots of grandchildren and they come round and play. And uh, so that um, occupies us. We have dinners with family and grandchildren quite often. Occasionally they come stay the night. Yeah. Yeah. So good and to then, Yeah. And then otherwise I'm just doing committee meetings and reading around committees and problems which i imagine you'd be very busy with yes um, i am <laughs> yeah. yes. for another question um what are some of your favorite locations in new zealand that people should visit okay i love abel tasman national park mm -hmm. a great favorite have you been there um, I've been not to the park. I've been to the North Island only oh, so far. Able Tasman National Parks are near Motueka in the Nelson region. And uh, it's got beautiful um, sea, beaches, bush walks. And you can walk from one end to the other, of course. And you can pop in and out of it on water taxis. And uh, we're just in our family. We've got lovely memories of holidays in that area. So Abel Tasman National Park's beautiful. Yeah. I, work, I work on the West Coast as well, although I'm not really doing that at the moment. But the West Coast of the South Island has got some stunningly beautiful scenery. And the drive between Christchurch and the West Coast through the mountains is yeah. uh, absolutely beautiful drive through the mountains, seeing the change from the dry uh east coast over to the wet west coast through the mountains so yeah. that's lovely mm. uh, the drives were truly scenic um it's like in the movies and you don't expect they'll hit you even more than that uh, mm. so it was very beautiful and um, a couple of years ago my husband and i had a really lovely holiday around the east cape in the north island so yeah. that's between ohopi and gisborne and that's i love that too yeah really area Amazing. Well, those are absolutely great recommendations we can check out. Um, now, Sally, which historical figure or celebrity would you love to sit down and have a chat with and why? Well, maybe uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. Wow. Yeah. What would you want to know from him? Oh, just, uh, just talk to him about music and how he wrote his music. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a great um, fictional exercise to imagine, wow, I could have a chat with anyone. Fantastic. Now, um, for a last warm-up question, what does a typical day in your life look like? Well, my days are not quite what they were, um, but a normal day for me would be to be, my husband would get up and make me a cup of tea and bring it to me. And, <laughs> and then I get up around six and uh, get myself organized and go to work, leave for work around seven, 7.15, go to see patients in a private hospital and then either go to the public hospital for clinic operating list or the private hospital or my private rooms and then work away all day, 
with um, consulting and operating and come home about six or seven in the evening. So that would be my usual. Occasionally I can call in at home at lunchtime, but that's quite variable whether I can achieve that. Mm. And for a while I used to get up a little bit earlier and go to the gym between six and seven, but my yeah. gym is um, disintegrated at the moment. It used to be in the park down the road, but the building's been pulled down and taken uh -huh. over. Yeah, so our gym's in disarray, so I should sort that out. Yeah, that's no good. Um, okay, so let's start to get to know Sally and her journey now. Tell us about your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Okay, I was uh, born in Christchurch. Um, my, fam my father was a GP in Riggerton, and uh, I think that they had moved it to the house in Riggerton before I was born. Mm. Um, I grew up in Riccarton. It was a nice big house with five children in the family. Yeah. Um, my father's general practice was in the house and my mother, who uh, had trained as a nurse, had been a surgical nurse, uh, charge nurse, she looked after my father's general practice and did a lot of unpaid uh, work with, uh, with him and his practice. Yeah. Um, there's five children in our family. I'm the second of five. Five children under seven, so yeah, yeah. Mm. opening quite the lively household. Yes. Yeah, and um, do you remember some of your childhood? What were you like as a child or teenager, and how do you think that influences you to this day? I was very quiet, mm -hmm. very very outgoing, extroverted older sister, and I was very <laughs> quiet and very compliant and good. So. Yeah. It was what I was like. <laughs> yeah, it's always thought that way when one sibling is, you know, outgoing. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, three, three little boys just younger than me. Um, so I just did what I was told. I did my schoolwork. I did my homework. I was always somewhat interested. And, uh, uh, and I did lots of other things like sewing and music. And, uh, yeah. and we did various sports. We went swimming a lot. We went to the Faranui pool, which is the public swimming pool down the road three times a day all summer. Yeah. And okay. us on lots of picnics and walks and to the beach a lot. So we just had a pretty standard, nice childhood, really. Yeah, that's very good to hear. And um, you mentioned your father was a GP. Was, yeah. uh, do you think that's part of the influence in you know being attracted to medicine? Well, I think it's both my parents really. My father being a GP, and he he was a GP surgeon, so right. uh, those old style surgeons who who took their own patients from the private general practice into the private hospital and did their varicose veins and hernias and things. That's yeah. okay. used to happen. Um, I think it's still happens in Australia, but it, it doesn't occur in New Zealand anymore. And my mother being a surgical nurse, she, she was, right. well, she, she says that she breastfeed me, fed me while reading the British Medical Journal. So she <laughs> yeah. a, a medical interest really being a nurse. So between them, yeah. yeah. And I imagine. Down to my father's surgery in the house and uh, look at his medical books and, um, look at his instruments and things. So we used to just yeah. wander down and have a look at his things and uh, be fascinated. 
and there was actually a book that he had uh, that I read when I was a child. And it was actually a book, uh, the book about the elephant man. And that there was a, a there were three three stories in the book, and one of them was about the elephant man, and the other one was about an emergency room. And I was probably only about eight when I read that book, and I was fascinated by the medical drama of the the three books in that yeah. the three stories. Yeah. yeah, I would have been exciting as a child. And um, I, I suppose with this surgical focus um, from both of your parents back then, you would have had this understanding of what the surgical life would have been about. Um, well, not a, a actual hospital surgical life. I knew general practice for sure. My yeah. father's, our house was the general practice. So we, there were always patients coming through as, to see my father as the GP and he was always going out uh, visiting them in their homes and we would sometimes go with him and sit in the car and he'd sometimes go and visit patients in hospital and we might go with him um, and every we would be well aware that when there was an emergency going on because there'd be a bit of action in the house and mm. rustling out and a few words said about what was going on um, yeah. so yeah but I think even that type of general practice is not really what is practiced now the I think a lot more patients attend emergency clinics and after hours clinics, whereas the GPs used to go and visit the patients in their homes for heart failure and all sorts of things um, yeah. in the middle of the night, you know, give them injections of things in the middle of the night in their homes. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. And um, so um, nonetheless, you, we were chatting earlier about how you had this interest in music and you thought you were going to play the violin. So tell us yeah. about the story. What, what yes. did Peter tell you? Well, my sister and I both did a lot of music. She, did, she played the flute and the piano and I played the violin. And we, we belonged to the whole series of orchestras in Christchurch that children went to, the Christchurch mm. School of Instrumental Music and our school orchestras and chamber music groups and competitions. And uh, so just worked our way through those. I think I was more of a regular musician rather than any more than that. And my <laughs> teacher certainly told me that. <laughs> and he went to Melbourne, by the way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I liked playing music. Uh, and which we, my sister and I still got lovely friends uh, who we met through music. So it's a great thing. Yeah. And as an adult, I played in a number of orchestras. So the Dunedin Civic Orchestra when I was a student and then several orchestras in Christchurch uh, when I came back uh, to work as a consultant here. Yeah. yeah. So music does appear to be a big part of your life. Um, how do you think it helps you in your practice? Oh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very soothing, really, a good distraction. It's uh, very routine, skillful, um, beautiful, uh, yes, and and if you're playing in a group or orchestra, you've really got to be a very good team to bring it together. So it does bring out teamwork and leadership, and followership, and all those things. So, yeah. so playing music with a group is, uh, you know, it's tolerance, it's uh, sharing and fairness. Uh, you know, it's, it's got all of those things that we want to see in a surgical team as well. 
Yeah, well, some interesting parallels there. I know I'm always baffled when I look at my colleagues who, you know, create beauty out of the instruments that they perform on. Um, so this does bring us then, you know, growing up, you would have then made a decision to go to study medicine. Um, where, so we've gathered that you studied medicine at the University of Otago, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, what are some of the highlights you remember from those days? Oh, um, I think being a student in Dunedin was great fun. Yeah. Highlight, um, you know, living away from home and being a, in an interesting city. Just going to medical school and experiencing all that was great. And meeting lovely friends and being introduced to some other activities that I hadn't known of before, like skiing and yeah, it was, I did a little bit of skiing back then. So, um, and then I was back here in Christchurch for clinical years, and it was really just a lot of uh, hard work, standard hospital-based uh, work. So, yeah, yes. Okay, and as a student, I mean, now we know where you are and what you do, but as a student, were you drawn to, you know, any societies, clubs, or student politics in general? No, no, I, I had my son when I was 17. And so my life revolved around him, really. Children's backgrounds, yeah. reading books, playing with toys. So that, that's what I did. I did medical training and, uh, and spending time with my son Sam so yeah so. which would have been um a very big challenge at that time um was there anything that you know would have helped you uh, overcome that challenge or help you cope with that well I don't see that as a challenge it was the way yeah. my life was so it was absolutely fine there was nothing challenging uh or difficult that was yeah. it was what the way it was so it was great yeah yeah and um, so as a medical student, um, take us through your mindset. What were, were there any dreams, goals, and ambitions back then about where you might end up? Uh, maybe not. I think I was a bit of a drifter. I just sort of went along with things. I just proceeded along the way of medical school and sort of thought about maybe being a pediatrician because I liked children. Yeah, uh, and then I, I thought of about surgery after I didn't get a good mark. Well, I got a B B mark in my pediatrics uh, attachment as a student, and yeah. I thought, well, I worked so hard, they can't hit <laughs> <help> me. <laughs> so, but but then I've got pediatrics and plastic surgery because pl pediatrics is a pretty big part of plastic surgery so I've, I've got everything I wanted anyway so but but during medical school uh, I suppose that the areas I was less influenced to continue and might have been more physician medical side yeah. um, looking back I think well why not um, I was reasonably interested but um, uh, I just I think I I, I might have been on a course to do surgery without realizing it, I think, yeah. or emergency department or anesthetic, something more technical like that. Yeah. Now we do seem to gather that, you know, the procedural side of things, um, mm. 
equipped with you know the skills you were developing as you grew up would have drawn you naturally to that and um, I was always interested in anatomy too so that was a very strong interest in anatomical yeah. section yeah yeah they they can be exciting practical classes I do love that myself sure. um, now Sally do you interact a lot with medical students these days uh, not a lot, but we do have medical students. I have uh, had a lot more to do with medical students in the past. These days, we, we used to have 50 medical students, and now we have 40 medical students. Right. And they come to some of my clinics and to our skin cancer see and treat clinic yeah. um, and operating theatre. And we also have sixth year medical students on uh, attachments. And we have more of them now than we used to because of the difficulties with attachments overseas. Mm. So um, we, see, we see fourth and sixth year medical students. And, yeah. uh, uh, and, and that's, that's very good. Uh, they'll do like a half day here and there with us. And they go, we've, we've got 11 plastic surgeons now. So they, they spend time with a variety of us and um, always have to remember that they haven't seen these extremely interesting things know, yeah. before, whereas they might be something pretty standard for me. They're extremely <sighs> interesting for the medical students, like um, a Dupuytron's contracture operation or yeah. a excision of a squamous cell carcinoma in a split skin graft. Uh, it's um, pretty interesting for them. Yeah, because you turn around, you, you notice this hushed um, admiration for what you're doing. Um, so let's talk about the modern day medical student. Um, do you think there's anything we should be doing more of or less of these days? I, I'm not really involved with the curriculum. Um, I, I think that the, the changes to include more uh, Indigenous health and um, more interest in rural background, they're good things. I, when I work on, on the West Coast and Greymouth, um, I sometimes see the rural immersion medical students there, and they're usually extremely interested in what's going on. So, um, so that's good. Uh, I think the, I think, uh, no, I, I don't really get to know the, what the students are doing in a, in a more broadly, because I'm focused on my work and they've come to see plastic surgery. So I'm sorry to say I haven't uh, found out more about them, about their training these days. One of my colleagues is involved with the university and he he does, we used to do, take them for tutorials and spend a lot more time mm -hmm. with them until yeah. about five years ago. And now we, another colleague does all the tutorials and suturing and skills and things. Yeah. And now with, with the view that you're afforded from the top, um, so to speak, um, is there anything you would advise medical students to do, to get involved with? Um, that I think groups like yours are great. So we, we have some medical student surgical interest group. We have mm -hmm. that here and, uh, and they get speakers along to sessions. And I think that, that sort of education and social evening that they hold is extremely good yeah. um, uh, and I, I think just making sure students talk to if a student talks to the surgeon or, or doctor um, <laughs> and interacts I mean the doc I've got to do that back as well yeah but, um, some of them uh, indeed uh, come forward and volunteer that they'd like to come to my operating list and um, 
uh, they come and seek me out and ask me that. And, and of course, if they do that, um, they'll, they'll get to come. So I, I think that it's amazing how forthright some of them are in a, in a helpful and appropriate way. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think that's good. I, I don't think any students in my day would have done that. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, they, they, they get the over, I think they get the overview of what they're supposed to do in a, uh, an attachment and then they try and uh, find the uh, operating lists and clinics and special cases they're, they're supposed to write up within uh, that. So, you know, some of them are supposed to like, they're supposed to write essays, et cetera, I think, or present yeah. presentations. And some of the topics they come up with are really leading edge and interesting. And I think, yeah. wow. Yeah, like fat grafting and keloid scar treatment, various interesting things like that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, the people who do, you know, seek out the opportunities will very often be met with, you know, enthusiasm to teach. Mm -hmm. um, they, there comes a point in medical school these days where you move from, okay, I am being taught and I should receive to maybe I can go out of my comfort zone and seek out opportunities mm -hmm. for myself. And it appears that you're advising us that maybe try to ask about the things that we're interested in. You know, I noticed more when you do that too. Um, no, we notice the medical students, of course, but um, those who <laughs> um, come forward um, and question us and ask us things, that's a good thing. I, you know, and, but sometimes the surgeon uh, is focused on something complex and I'm... So I apologize for all surgeons then, that sometimes we, we may not seem to be talking and interacting with the students enough, um, but that might, might hopefully only be because we're doing something that's challenging and difficult in surgery, or we've got something else on our mind, like the complex yeah. patient in the ward or um, a complication developing elsewhere. And uh, so there can be a lot more going on. So the, the surgeon who is interacting less with a student may not really, they may normally be more interactive, but yeah. sometimes it just doesn't seem like that. Mm. No, and that's good advice. I mean, yes, we should be asking for opportunities and questions, but maybe reading the room first and understanding. Okay. Yeah. But, but our, our registrars and nurses are all very good at uh, attending to the students as well. Um, and I think that's all better these days than it ever was before. Hopefully the hierarchies uh, are less problematic than they were many years ago. Yeah. Okay. Now let's move on to um, after medical school and talk about your early career, Sally. Um, well, we've gathered this that you completed your specialization in plastic surgery in Otago before. Uh, no, no. Um, oh, okay. So uh, medical school training was Otago University. Yep. With I did a year at University Canterbury University in Christchurch, yep. which was called the intermediate year then. Then I did two years of preclinical at Otago University in Dunedin. And then I did the rest of my clinical medical training in Christchurch, Ototahi Christchurch. Mm -hmm. um, okay. so, so, so Otago Medical School has got three clinical schools, so Dunedin, Christchurch and Wellington, so it's a bit spread out through the country. Yeah, okay, so that's where um, you then started specialising. Well, I then did my um, 
house officer years, a couple of years here, yeah. and became a registrar, surgical registrar. Oh, I, did, I got my surgical primary as a second year house officer. Mm -hmm. Very good thing. It was called the surgical primary back then, or the first part. Yeah. And, um, and then, so that's, I did postgraduate years three and four as registrar in Christchurch. And then I was very interested in plastic surgery. And uh, I had a very lovely medical school colleague who was also interested in plastic surgery. Yeah. And he was going to be chosen to do training. So I, I looked elsewhere and, oh. um, and applied for a job in Auckland for yeah. plastic surgery training in Auckland. Because back then, the training program was a little bit different. Um, wasn't quite so formally structured as it is now. Mm. And then I thought, oh, I just can't go to Auckland. You know, Auckland's a big and busy, crazy sort of city at that stage. Yeah. So now, and I thought, I just can't do that. And I, I'll do general surgery because I'd applied for general surgery too. And um, I got the plastic surgery job in Auckland. And then I thought, I can't take it. And, but they'd given my general surgery job to someone else. So I went to Auckland. I, I did my first two years of advanced training, as it was called then in Auckland at Middlemore Hospital. Yeah. And it's extremely busy. It's a very, very busy city, hospital, region, people injuring themselves every hour of the day and night. Yeah. yeah it was just so busy. Yeah. yeah. So your apprehensions in a way became true about the busyness around. Um, but would that have been great experience for you as a junior? It was. It's very good uh, hospital and department, excellent surgeons, plenty of interesting work, cleft lip and palates, head and neck cancer, microsurgery, burns, all sorts of major interesting things going on there. And so I got a huge, huge experience at Middlemore. And then I came back to Christchurch and had a couple of years of training here too. Yeah. Okay. And was at that time, did you have to specialize in any field of plastics or was it still? But during your, your surgical training, you, you just get exposed to the whole range and work your way through different attachments where say you've got a team that does more cleft lip and palate and then another team yeah. focuses on um, head and neck cancer and reconstruction and another team's doing more hand and micro and the, all the skin cancer and burns that come through. So you're going around the teams and developing the field of uh, exposure within the curriculum and there'll be a few gaps and then you work out ways to learn uh, the areas and fill the gaps. So over the, four, it was four years then, I think it's now five years of training, yeah. um, you, you should have covered the field. Uh, and in plastic surgery, there's also cosmetic surgery, which is essentially not available in the public hospital. It's a little bit of um, exposure and training. You can um, go and assist in private, depending on timetables and availability. Yeah. But um, learning cosmetic surgery needs a bit more effort from the surgeons you work with and uh, your timetable. So these days, our um, trainees in plastic surgery, they'll have designated half days here and there 
for attachments in private so they see a, a bit more of the broad spectrum of plastic surgery yeah okay and at that stage what were the things that were driving your decision making because um you told us a bit earlier you know you had your son so in terms of starting and balancing a family and your career, you know, what were your priorities back then? Um, well, I always thought, well, I'll settle down as a surgeon back in Christchurch if I can, or you know, I, I can, you know, we could, I can work anywhere and get us uh, get us set up anywhere, but ideally back in Christchurch. But then my my colleague was lined up for the job back in Christchurch. I went and did a fellowship in hand and microsurgery at Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. All right. Excellent. And um, I went there without my son for six months. And then I, he joined me in England. I went, I had another fellowship in Oxford in England yeah. for a year. And he joined me there and we had a great time there. And I learned a huge amount in both of those fellowships. And then I, I came back to New Zealand to the job in Christchurch because my, my friend, um, uh, went to study to do do fellowship in Adelaide and craniofacial surgery, and he stayed there. So all oh, right, yeah. I got the job in Christchurch and uh, went on from there. Yeah. Now I'm interested in those fellowships that you describe mm -hmm. um, in Kentucky and Oxford. Um, mm -hmm. Was it typical for people to go and you know yes. in a fellowship? Yes, particularly in surgery. Some other specialties. People will do their training and just then go into a consultant job. But most surgeons will do a fellowship um, either in, their, in Australia or New Zealand or overseas and do a bit more training in a special area, like say microsurgery or breast reconstruction or yeah. something like that, melanoma, up, update in melanoma, um, and just uh, sort of broaden their, advance some of their skills. Cosmetic fellowships are quite a um, good thing for a plastic surgeon to do because of the, um, you get a lot more exposure to learning cosmetic surgery things like facelifts and eyelids and mm. body contouring operations. Um, but um, you don't have to do a fellowship. Uh, and in fact, it, you are essentially fully trained at the end of your five years of surgical education and training. Yeah. It's just, um, it's like a, a treat at the end, really. You know, at last we're trained, we can go and travel overseas to Canada or America or yeah. European country or Melbourne and do some further work with really interesting people and patients. And uh, so it's, it's a good thing to do for a year or two or three after training and then come back to settle down in a, permanent job yeah, yeah. okay great opportunity yeah. and to those people who might be listening who are considering fellowships um and the like is there any advice you'd give in terms of you know what you should be looking for in a fellowship or possible destination yeah well so that's the components really and, and also it's all affected now by covid mm. so fellowships are still available but it takes a lot more uh, calculated effort to work out whether you can go overseas and whether you can then come back and um, so doing fellowships overseas is more difficult um, and also overseas people coming to Australia and New Zealand to do fellowships is more difficult um, but I, I think um, during your training you're, you may develop an interest in an area 
and realize that you'd like to have that as your special interest for your career, say mm -hmm. microsurgical breast reconstruction, and you get to know who's doing well in the world for that, say a certain center in Canada, for example, where several current uh, surgeons have been, and, um, and then apply for such places and get a, an attachment as a fellow for a year. Um, so you develop your interest and then work out whether you can actually gain a position in one of these fellowships. Some fellowships are paid, which would be the best thing, and some are unpaid, and yeah. some are paid at a lower rate. So, so funding for the year or two can become an issue because mm. you've got to be able to live. And many people by that stage have partners and families and um, tra travel and accommodation. You've got to be able to cover all that somehow. Yeah. Uh, so that does come into it, the cost uh, of uh, funding uh, tr travel for a fellowship. Um, a couple of my colleagues uh, who are a little bit older, who were a little bit older when they got through training, they did short-term fellowships. They did like six weeks here and came back and then six weeks somewhere else. And that was a good way to get some up-to-date, uh, different exposures. It's good to go somewhere different that's not exactly the same as our Australian New Zealand training or yeah. New Zealand training. Get a different view on how they do it, say, in Norway or France, or one of my colleagues went to an excellent uh, uh, plastic surgery orthopedic trauma hospital in India, and it was yeah. a fantastic experience for him. Mm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And this is something um, some of our previous guests have also spoken about, um, you know, getting an understanding of how different healthcare systems work. And oftentimes you're able to help them with your, you know, skills as a surgeon and take back some of the learning from there. So I think there's a lot we can, you know, pick up from that. Yes. Yeah. And so now in thinking about yourself back then as a junior surgeon, you know, going up the rungs, do you have any advice you might've liked to hear at that stage? And by extension, any advice for the aspiring and junior surgeons right now? Uh Myself, I would always have preferred to be a full-time public hospital doctor, but yeah. full-time appointments were never available. They might occasionally be available now, because um, I like working in a busy hospital with trauma and the whole range of things that's available in the public hospital. Because in New Zealand, our um, private system is different from Australia. Our public and private are completely separate, and mm. our private is just pretty much routine elective surgery there's no there's no trauma no complex major cases cases really in private um so in the public we we do all those the more in, more interesting multidisciplinary activities and we have medical students and trainees and junior doctors and uh, there's a lot lot more going on um, yeah. private is a business you have to run a business and though though all our colleagues do that really. I've um, had some problems with uh, running a business in private. Yeah. I've been badly burnt by a staff member um, some years ago um, who stole a, a lot of uh, money from me. So um, that just, I have a lot of problems with private practice. Mm. Um, you know, I tick along with a nice private practice and lovely patients and the work's all lovely and interesting. 
and that that's very good. But another problem I have with public and private is yeah, in public, and then you're absent, and then you're in private. So you can't look after one when you are mm. away in the other. And occasionally, a patient has run into problems in one site when I'm at another site. These days, with a lot more surgeons employed, there's better cover for a problem, a complication. Yeah. Um, but when I started, there were far fewer of us. And uh, so the responsibility was pretty high. So I, I always would have preferred to work under one roof and to have my patients in one venue. Um, but that's not the way it is anywhere, really. Yeah. Um, work in one place with, um, so you're there for, for your whole day's work and not absent too much. And so you've got more control. Yeah. No, we do we do see that and uh oftentimes inspired by you know seeing surgeons having multiple appointments in multiple different places um and it can be quite the task of juggling all of that as you were saying because you can't be in multiple places at once i've had um, you know problems with the concept of that but it is widely practiced and expected and usual and mm -hmm. basically surgeons manage that uh, pretty well but I, I think so, for some surgeons, it's pretty difficult. For, for some young surgeons, getting yeah. um, the, uh, the what in Australia is called VMO appointments at several hospitals just to yeah. get enough work uh, to, for, for the week, really, for, for, the, for their time to make sure they've got enough work coming through for their business. Yeah, but you mentioned um, there might be some things, you know, that are a bit problematic about this. What do you think about that, Sally? Um, I, I think uh, the problem, one of the problems there is uh, supervision of trainees. I think mm -hmm. the, it's always better if the trainers and supervisors are present quite a lot to spend time with the junior doctors, the, the registrars. And so sometimes they're only there for like half a day or a day a week. So it becomes a lot more difficult to for the rapport to develop and for the for the register the trainee to spend enough time with the trainer or supervisor to learn from them get continuity uh, so I, I think um having um short exposures is probably a bit difficult to uh, have continuity of exposure and training yeah my opinion <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely, because you, you've also pointed out sometimes at the start of your career, you're just trying to get a job somewhere, so yes, it might be necessary. Mm. Um, now, we might move on to some of your current role in terms of we're quite very fortunate to have you here as the president of RACS at the moment. And I was wondering, what does being the president of RACS mean for you? Okay, well, it's uh, a big responsibility. I'm um, the leader of the uh, college council and, and the whole college, including trainees and specialist international medical graduates. And also we have staff at the college. So um, I'm involved uh, with the, through the CEO, um, the staff. But being president, it's a, a big thing to keep an eye on the portfolios like um, education, training, um, fellowship services, uh, finance, uh, 
risk management audit, and also things like global health, international engagement, uh, problems, med medico legal problems mm -hmm. that happen. So, but the biggest areas are probably related to um, education and training, really. Yeah. And um, along your training and work, was there a point where you felt drawn to this? And now that you've... Not really, no. Yeah. No, <laughs> no yeah. I, was, I was an examiner for the plastic surgery court for the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. So an examiner for the fellowship exam, the final exam. And so that's a big thing at the end of training. So you do your all your set training and uh, towards towards the end, during that last year, you attend for the fellowship exam, which has seven components, the written papers, clinical cases, anatomy, pathology. Yeah. There are all these aspects. Each specialty has slightly different uh, um, variations on the seven components. And so I was an examiner. Mm. I really enjoyed that. Um, the, the process, the uh, collegiality, the importance of uh, keeping an eye on our trainees and the specialist international medical graduates at the end of their training and just making sure that we had a process, we interpreted the process to approve the trainees to go out there and practice surgery. So it's a really big thing. And I really enjoyed that. And then I went on to be the New Zealand Deputy Chair of the Court of Examiners. So that's um, like the, the top level of the keeping an eye on the court of examiners and yeah. um, that was very important. And uh, and then I thought, well, I've got interested in college activities and I want yeah. something more. So I put my name forward to become a counselor and I got voted in by the fellowship. So I became a counselor and that was, you know, going into a governance role was a newish thing for me. Mm. And uh, so, I uh, started and managed uh, and became a member of quite a number of committees, working my way around education board and property and, um, well, what else did I do? Professional development. And then I became chair of professional development and standards board. Uh, so I did the rounds of quite a number of the committees. And uh, so I met a lot of uh, councillors and various staff. And um, so I wasn't seeking to be president. I yeah. am president and I'm happy to be president. But when you become a councillor, you really are putting your name forward for any role that you get voted into within council. Because each year we have elections for council positions, the office bearer and office holder positions. And uh, it's a bit of a hierarchy of positions. Mm. And uh, when I became president, I think I was the most senior councillor around at that time. When I got on to council, there were only two of us in that year and one of them didn't get on for a further term. Yeah. So, but, but a, a couple of years back, there are quite a lot in this group in one year. So when I got on, I was, I was the most senior then and I happened to be appointed as the president, elected yeah. as the president. And I was prepared for it. And I knew it could happen and yeah. happy to be it. And I follow in the footsteps of a whole series of important presidents, the last one being Tony Sparnan, before that John Batten. So I've um, 
um, uh, another in a long line of uh, people who've um, known a lot about college activities. So, so that's yeah. how it happened. And then um, I've just been uh, getting grips with it, to grips with it and uh, running committee meetings and board meetings and in yeah. uh, dealing with uh, various issues. So. Yeah, because that's um, what we've previously heard on a RAC's podcast, actually, where you were talking about some of the issues that are quite dear to you in terms of rural health equity, yes. gender bias, bullying and sexual harassment. Yes, um, yeah, so they're, they're yeah. ongoing big projects for RAC's. Um, so the rural health equity strategy has been um, worked on by via the rural surgery committee, rural surgery section, and there's a, a surgeon called Bridget Clancy, who's been the driver of that, and a yeah. group of them have written this very extensive um, plan strategy for rural health. It's really equity for all, because all our people in Australia and New Zealand, wherever they live, and other features, wherever they live is the issue here, should have access to all the medical surgical care that we can offer but yeah. it's a lot harder for people in the more remote rural areas smaller towns and cities to access you know cardiac surgery neurosurgery plastic surgery you know there are some specialties that can uh where the surgeons can set up practice in small cities and big towns but some specialties have to really only practice in um big metropolitan areas, like yeah. Sydney, et cetera, like neurosurgery and cardiothoracic surgery. You can, you, you can only practice those in big centres, not small cities and towns. Yeah. But the rural health equity strategy is about, um, you know, finding ways to um, attract more surgeons to, more, more junior doctors to train in surgery and uh, to retain them in uh, surgical jobs in smaller centres and uh, collaborate with hospital managers and administrators to, to make things work better for uh, surgeons to work as, in small groups in smaller cities. The specialties that are most applicable are general orthopaedics, which are our biggest specialties. Yeah. But also there's some role for plastic surgery, urology, you know, some throat surgery, vascular to work or do hub and spoke or spoken hub clinics in uh, smaller places. Okay. And um, so you've, you've mentioned, was it Bridget Clancy? Yeah, it's Bridget Clancy and she's someone you should keep on your radar. Yeah. No, this, this is a great um, thing we're talking about in terms of, you know, finding out more about rural health equity, because mm. I suppose you're playing your part um, over there, but as students and junior doctors, um, are there some things that we can do, you feel? Well, there's, we think, well, we, we, we are told that uh, junior doctors who come from rural origins might be more likely to return to rural yeah though i don't know the statistics on that um rural attachments during medical school training may help and also rural exposure during surgical training 
And then it's the, the part of surgical training, like early, mid or late, where you might get your exposure to rural, say a general surgeon, if they got their last one or two years in a rural setting, might that attract them to stay in rural? And yeah. another area is doing fellowships, developing a fellowship, so post surgical education and training fellowship in rural surgery to yeah. try and uh, expose people to rural lifestyle. And yeah. so there's, there's a number of aspects of the strategy to try and find ways to improve the um, services, the equity of surgical services to all. But also there's a little bit of equity problem even within some metropolitan areas yeah not unlike rural it's not rural but it's not unlike rural where some metropolitan suburbs or lgas i think they're called in australia yeah. they, they're um less attractive for surgeons to work in to stay in and work in so that can be a problem in some bigger cities as well yeah no we totally understand that and actually on our side um we quickly realized that we wanted to have rural surgeons on the show who were able to you know, speak to a larger audience of students telling us about the possibilities and the need and, and even just how good it might be to work out there and have a nice life. Um, yes. So, yeah, so we've been very fortunate to have these surgeons on the show and for you, you know, to have a chance to reinforce that message today. Yes. Well, I do uh, visit the West Coast. I'm, I'm not just at the moment, but the West Coast of the South Island of New Zealand is a pretty small population, 30,000 over about um, oh, a very big surface area. And, uh, and it's geographically remote and often isolated by weather conditions as well. And it has a, a population of people who are, um, are not served well by general practice and, uh, and tend to attend late for medical conditions in fact they stay in the bush for a long time so um so i i have visited there about 10 times a year for 30 years so yeah a lot of rural for me mm. yeah and now if we move to some of the other issues we've touched on at the start in terms of let's say the gender bias bullying and sexual harassment yes uh, how how do you think we might be able to bring about a culture change and possibly what's being done at the moment? Okay. Um, well, the um, building respect and improvement, improving patient safety and the diversity inclusion plans, they're all trying to address this. And our college does have uh, a goal of 40% females, surgeon, female surgeons, 40% on various committees by, well, I think it's by 2023, I think. And yeah. but we're not actually achieving that. Some of our committees have achieved that, but generally um, females are still overall about 15% of fellows. They're more represented in the trainees. Um, so the diversity, I mean, as one of my councillor colleagues says, being a female is not a diverse thing. It's 50% of the population. So it's a great yeah. uh, thing, a terminology to call gender diversity because, well, there's only two and <laughs> two, two genders. Um, but yes, we need to attract more women. There's a lot of um, 
with selection, uh, orthopedics now has uh, a program to try and promote women for selection in, in orthopedic surgery, and that has stepped up because that's one of the least, uh, with the least, least number of women. Uh, but some specialties like um, pediatric surgery, plastic surgery, enos and throat surgery, and uh, did I say pediatric? Anyway, plastics. Um, four of them are reasonably good. And I think pediatrics might even be more than 50% females now. Um, but other specialties are still significantly lagging. But the problems of discrimination, bullying, and sexual harassment, they certainly have been a big problem in medicine and surgery, surgery in particular. And um, as of about five to seven years ago, there's been a big inquiry into that and the, the cultural change program. And we're doing a, a new review shortly and a new expert advisory group has been, yeah. has been set up to, to look to do the same study and review to see whether we are, have made any improvements with the operating with respect program over the last few years. Um, so I'll be interested to hear. Now, yeah. I, I feel there's improvement, but there's still some degree of bullying behavior and um, some discrimination. Um, we, we're doing some work on racism at the moment, developing a position statement on racism. Yeah. So sadly, some of these um, unacceptable behaviors do occur. They occur in other professional groups too, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and but we we do have to. Well, I think we are leading the way in surgery, um, and others realise the significant work that RACS has done in this field in the discrimination, bullying, and sexual harassment field. Um, but it's, sadly, I'm sure it is still a problem out there. And you know, we we may find we're a bit better, but we've got a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've had, uh, so on the show, we've had the deputy chair of the Women in Surgery Committee. Um, we've also had um, the chair of Operate with Respect, which you've mentioned a bit earlier. And they, you know, both told us a bit about the, the initiatives being taken. I was particularly attracted by this idea of intersectionality in medicine and surgery that Associate Professor Ria Liang um, would have mentioned about, you know, we spoke about the genders that are present and now, you know, the increased genders, the, the increased walks of life that people are coming in with, which you know, make surgery what it is. We don't have to fit in with that stereotype um, that has been unfortunately portrayed until now. I've always said that um, too about the other types of diversity, like personality. Mm. Um, um, I'm an introvert. And as I said, I was quite child and introvert. And you wouldn't think that an introvert would end up being a president. So I think, you know, we want to see all that sort of diversity of personality types um, and not just the things we list like religion. In fact, religion's not an issue, I don't think at all, but you know, that we need to be, we represent our population really. It, as the Otago University says, mirror on society. So yeah, mm. that's a great way of looking at it, a mirror on society. 
um because we you know shouldn't forget the humans behind the surgery titles um and speaking of titles that was an innovation that we've spoken about recently where um we're phasing out the gendered titles um can you tell us a little bit more about that how did that come about okay well uh gender it's very historical the yeah of the uh, title Mr. for a Surgeon, and it goes back, I think, several hundred years to the barber surgeons. Um, <laughs> and I think that as opposed to the um, medically trained university doctors who stage doctor, but um, so it's been a tradition really that surgeons who were nearly all males stayed Mr. Um, but I, I think it's easier if all medical people, if they've got their medical degree, stay the same, doctor, and it's easier for the patients. That's my primary thought. Yeah. Patients get a bit concerned that they're saying the wrong thing. Dr. Miss Jude. Yeah. Dr. Langley, why are you called Mr. Langley? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they, they, they um, want to say the right thing. So if we're all doctor, it's it's easier all round, and in other professions, are non-gendered now, and um, like for example, I didn't know if you were a female or male. Like you've got no title, and and yeah. it doesn't matter, does it? Yeah. And my name's a giveaway. There's not many. Oh, I suppose some men are called Sal, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, so these issues that you've spoken about were, you know, very glad to hear that you are there and you are championing these causes. Yes. Um, but to, you know, the students, junior doctors who might be listening to us, is there something we can do, you know, on the ground level? Oh, I, I think just practice that um, and just make sure that selection committees, etc., are using non-biased uh, processes. So if you see any element of bias being practiced in information gathering, uh, interview methods, um, call it out um, because that just should not be occurring. We can't do blind interviews and discussions um, with respect to gender, um, but we, we want uh, relevant information for um, medical school and trainee selection, not um, things that don't really matter so much, like whether the person's male or female or of what country of origin or anything like that. Yeah. What the, the interests and features of the person as a human being. Yeah, because I, I definitely feel that, that, you know, we shouldn't wait to be in those positions of responsibility or leadership to enact those changes. There are some things we can do at our level. Um, now for a bit of a different um, topic, but we're wondering about, are there any wider collaborations that tend to happen with the other colleges? Um, you know, what's the extent of that collaboration and does it even happen? Yes, um, there, there is. There's a lot of collaboration with other colleges. We've got a very strong link, in particular with the anaesthetists, with mm. ANSCA, and the president of the of ANSCA comes to our meetings and I go to their meetings yeah. um, every few months. And um, But then there's another group called CPMC, the Council of Presidents of Medical Colleges, right. and that's the presidents of 
oh, there must have been about 15 or 20 colleges, so physicians, radiologists, pathologists, psychiatrists, etc. And that, and that group gets together. Uh, it used to be every several months, but now it's every month and goes through some areas of interest like well-being and trainee well-being um, with COVID and various things like that. Um, so, and, and they, then that group, the CPMC, also every three months collaborates with a big meeting with um, the Department of Health, the AMA president, um, I think president, the dean of medical schools. Uh, so there are about seven or eight um, other groups that uh, meet at this meeting. And, uh, and then it's certainly information gathering and sharing, yeah. um, as well as uh, particularly with COVID, there's a lot of um, information that needs to be passed around and discussed, for example, vaccinations and things like that. Yeah, that's uh, very topical and very good to hear as well that there are, you know, those messages that do get shared and there is a wider goal that we're all collaborating on. Um, I know an interesting division, I suppose, that might be of relevance to the students and aspiring surgeons is also um, the JDOCS framework from yeah. that I suppose is more relevant to us and provides us an access point into understanding you know, how to engage with RACS. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about this? How can students make the most of, you know, is there anything that we can get involved with when it comes to RACS? I think as a student, I don't think you can join JDOCS as a student. I'd have to double check that. But certainly as a um, first year and second year, third year postgraduate, you can join. And it's it's a combination of an e-portfolio and access to the library and some courses. So there's some structure there. Um, in New Zealand, um, our medical students already have an e-portfolio. So they tend to have less interest. But you've probably got e-portfolios now too, have you? Yeah, well, some form of that, and it varies from school to school. Yes. Yeah, so JDOCS is very good there. We, we need to review the state of JDOCS because it was developed just when I started on council, which is about seven years ago. Um, and we, we need to review how it's progressing, particularly with relation to COVID and a few other changes that are going on. But yeah, I think if, you, if you're really keen on surgery, you should, should definitely sign up to JDOCS and have some access to you know, further information and um, courses that you, you, or seminars or podcasts or various things that are do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because um, as you mentioned, there are there is some material that is open to medical students, um, but some of the others are restricted for access for only um, qualified doctors. So potentially that could be something, you know, that students could look into. So I better just check about um, medical student access. I know that the actual junior doctors, the first, mm -hmm. second and third year postgrad, they pay several hundred dollars to join. So it's about several hundred dollars a year. Yeah belong yeah yeah well maybe one reason why students haven't engaged with that yet <laughs> yeah um okay now tally we i suppose at the end of our conversation today we did want to get some of your reflective ideas about you know where you've come from the state of things 
Um, thanks a lot for sharing about your experience, you know, in RACS and what other people are doing as well. Um, so in, in terms of a, a closing couple of questions, what are some of the values or life mottos that you think have helped you the most to get to where you are today? I think respect. I think that's a, it's one of our college values. And I think in, in life, it's a really important one. And it's uh, related to the Operating with Respect program too. So I think respect is really important. And also trust and fairness. I think they're really important things. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you have a medical condition, surgical condition, and you see your surgeon, the patient has put a lot of trust into the surgeon. So that surgeon has is someone who's well-trained, high standards, looks after themselves so they can attend to the patient appropriately. They're not drinking and taking drugs or tiring themselves out. The surgeon has to be in good condition so as the patient can appropriately trust the surgeon. Yeah. And fairness is really important, making sure that um, there's equity of access to medical schools and training and um, the, the everything that we offer is fairly distributed. Mm. Yeah, those are great principles um, to keep in mind. Now, can you tell us about a few people who've had a significant influence on your career? What did you learn from them? As I said, I was a bit of a drifter, and <laughs> I can't say that there are any particular people. There's a broad range of people who were all pretty good, and, um, and I was always interested in their teaching. But I don't think anyone in particular stands out. I think all of the plastic surgeons I met when I was a medical student and junior doctor, I was impressed with all of them. But I wouldn't say any of them were mentors or, or strong role models. Um, so it's interesting for me to say that. There's nobody that really stands out. Yeah. There are certainly surgeons in the world who I think are fantastic but I wouldn't call them role models. But I think overall it'd be best if we as students and junior doctors do find people who are role models and good mentors, yeah. people, like that, people like us that we see in senior roles. Maybe it's because I didn't see people like me in those roles, but I still went there. Yeah, that's a very important point of, um when we don't see the people who are like us doing the things that we want to do, it does make it a, you know, a bit more challenging to believe that we can do it too. Yes. Um, now, see that. Yeah. But just like yourself, you know, you didn't see anyone doing what you were, you no. want to do and yet here you are. Yeah. So incredibly inspired by your journey, Sally. Thank you. Um, now for the last question for today, are there, any so our listenership um, is probably interested in surgery even for a little bit even if not for a career but want to understand what it is about so do you have any takeaway lessons for those people considering a pathway in surgery or even the partners family or friends surrounding those um, aspiring surgeons i think encouragement uh, exposure like coming to a plastic surgery job and coming to our skin cancer see and treat clinic and actually getting a knife in your hand and yeah. cutting through the skin and into the fat. I did that with 
my junior, my registrar, Junie, on Monday, and you know she can cut through the skin, but she just wasn't sure how to get into the next layer. So it's nice yeah. to be there with her to take that next step. So there is exposure and making sure that a surgeon or a registrar can spend time with you to actually do some of those very basic skills. Because I tend to forget how how the, the registrar or the house officer has never done that before. Yeah. Cut the skin or seen the blood come out or popped into the fat. And how far deeper was that the muscle? It's yeah. a bit scary. So Junie reminded of me about that on Monday. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's about, you know, yeah most and yes. getting involved in those experiences yes yes and yeah, trauma uh, spending a bit of time um with uh, a trauma registrar and sort of running around the hospital to um to see how everything runs so it's not all about just cutting and stitching there's a, yeah. there's a lot of uh, uh problem solving assessment management time management yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of those things going on. You know, everything comes in the door and you've got to deal with anything that comes in the door. Yep, very true. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Um, which does bring us to the end of our conversation today, Sally. Um, on behalf of the, of the team, I just want to say that we're really grateful for your time and contribution. And we'd like to wish you good luck in your own endeavours. Um, and we hope to see you around as well. Well, thank you very much, Ganesht. And I think this is a great undertaking that you're doing. I wish we had podcasts and such webinars when I was young. It would have been fantastic. I would have been listening to them all the time. Thank you. Yeah, well, guests are very lucky to have had you today. So thanks for your, for your work. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'd love to hear what you think. So leave us your comments, questions and thoughts on our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages at the timeout podcast don't forget to subscribe and follow us on spotify and apple music to receive your regular dose of the timeout this episode was brought to you by ganisht aiden chloe and noreen and we'll see you next time